This episode contains information about sexual assault and or violence, which may be triggering to survivors. Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Storm O'Brink who is the volunteer coordinator at the Rape Victim Advocacy Program and a full spectrum doula about providing sexual and reproductive health care for folks with disabilities. Storm has been on our podcast to speak about medical violence and that has been one of our most listened to episodes so thank you Storm and we are excited to record with them again because caring for people with disabilities is a topic that we've been wanting to discuss for quite some time now. We also just want to give our listeners a trigger warning as we're going to be discussing some sensitive content, including ableism, medical violence, and death. And we also want to remind our listeners that you can find our newly redesigned show notes on our Patreon page by becoming a patron and supporter of the Woman Centered Health podcast by going to our website, www.womancenteredhealth.com and click on the support us slash Patreon tab. Hi, Storm. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast again. You'll have to excuse me. I have a little cold, so my voice is not the usual. But since it has been a while, can you share with our listeners some of the details about your background? Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me back again. And also, I am just getting over a little cold, so my voice might sound a little off in comparison to the last podcast I recorded. So let me tell you all a little bit about what I do for those who didn't listen to the first one. I'm the volunteer coordinator at RVAP, so that means that I coordinate the entirety of our crisis response to the hospitals and to police stations for people who have been sexually assaulted. I'm a certified sexual assault advocate. In my role, I also serve clients. So about half of my role is volunteer coordination and coordinating that crisis response. And then the other half of my role is in doing direct service with clients. So if folks have listened to my previous podcast, they know that I specialize in working with survivors whose perpetrator was a medical professional and working with survivors of medical violence. Um, My background is in LGBTQ-centered sexual violence services. So I used to work for an organization called Transformative Healing, and it was my dream job. But unfortunately, we got defunded back in 2017. Transformative Healing was a culturally specific sexual violence organization that served LGBTQ survivors of sexual assault. And that's kind of where I got it. Uh, into my start in working with medical violence survivors because there's a lot of crossover with our community in that regard. Something relevant, though, to this specific podcast is that the majority of my clients are people with disabilities, um, and I myself am a person with a disability, so I have a lot of experience with medical advocacy for people with disabilities. Throughout the podcast, you might hear me interchange the terms disabled and people with disabilities. I also want to be clear that disabled is not a bad word. It's just a state of being. Bodies are diverse and all bodies are valuable. A lot of people in the disabled community will use the term disabled and refer to themselves 
as disabled and some prefer a person with a disability. I use them interchangeably because it's really all about that individual's preference about how to refer to themselves. Some other things that I do in my role. So I have previously taught uh, classes within the uh, School of Social Work, and I helped facilitate and teach a course in Carver College of Medicine on clinical skills and responding to sexual violence. And then I also provide workshops to any practitioner that wants to learn more about working with survivors, LGBTQ survivors, uh, disabled survivors, and also survivors of medical violence. In the past, I have facilitated the Queer Art Healing Group as well, although that is on hiatus because of some of my personal schedule restrictions. And we had some issues trying to find facilitators for it. But we are planning to open it back up again in 2022. I also am one of the co-founders of the Queer Health Advocates Program at RVAP. So we send individuals who've been specially trained on um, how to advocate for LGBTQ individuals in the medical setting to medical appointments with them to help them facilitate a better relationship with their healthcare provider, get their questions answered, and ultimately feel like they're listened to in the healthcare space and feel safer. I remember that from the last episode that you have a lot of roles and are just a really busy person. So thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. I love talking with y'all. Y'all can tap (laughs) me for more podcasts than just this. Like I'm ready. (laughs) Awesome. We're ready to have you. So the other question we always like to ask our guests, but can you share with our listeners what informs your perspective? In other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? Okay, so I got a lot to say on this specific topic. So in regards to the specific topic of care for disabled people, I myself am a disabled person. You wouldn't actually know it by looking at me. That's actually how a lot of disabilities present. They're not always visible. People often think of people with disabilities as folks in wheelchairs or folks with crutches, but it's it's so much more complex and diverse than that. So in 2018, I had some pretty serious issues with my spine. Um, I have degenerative disc disease, and it unfortunately runs in my family. Uh, Because I have degenerative disc disease, I had a severely herniated disc in my spine that caused me to lose most of the sensation in my left leg. And I ended up eventually getting surgery. And that helped I I still have residual nerve damage from it. And so there are certain activities that I can't do easily, like go upstairs. I've also noticed that I can't easily wiggle the toes on my left foot. And I, I noticed that the other day when I was talking to another one of my disabled friends, and she had mentioned that she couldn't wiggle her toes. And I tried to do it. And I thought, oh, my God, I haven't been able to do this for four years. And I didn't notice until today. Oh, my God. But I can I can only wiggle them when I'm standing up for some reason. So uh, having a physical disability and also having mental illness and having PTSD has influenced my perspective a lot. And especially after I developed that physical disability, it changed my perspective of the way that I look at the world and the way that I look at disability access. So when I I look at uh, disability, I view it from a disability justice perspective. In this perspective, prioritize the expertise and leadership of disabled people 
especially those who are most marginalized among us, like black, indigenous people of color, LGBTQ folks, the poor. We also believe that you can't fight ableism without working in other movements to end all oppression because all oppressions are interconnected. So, you know, I think about it from the perspective of being a queer person. My queerness is connected to my disability and I can't easily separate them because I experience the world differently as a queer disabled person than I would if I was not a queer disabled person. Disability justice also assumes that all bodies are unique, all bodies are valid, um, and we also believe that all people are interdependent and deserve community support. But our community support can look a bit different than other folks. So people have this idea that we don't have independence or that we can't have independence, depending on what that specific disability is. But to be fair, I don't think anybody really has total independence because you are interdependent on your community. You cannot put food on your table without farmers. Farmers cannot put food on their table if you don't buy their crops. So that's one example. We have many other examples as to how we are interdependent on our community because humans are not meant to live in isolation. And I think that also the issue of disability justice is heavily connected with medical violence. So you really can't talk about disability justice without talking about medical violence because medical violence is, as an experience, is so pervasive in the community of folks with disabilities. And this is actually a really um, rare instance that I get to talk about stories and tell stories because typically my work is so confidential that, you know, it's very difficult to tell stories about it without revealing some sort of identifying detail about a person. But because so many of my friends are also disabled, I also have their stories to bring in. And with permission, I get to share these stories here today because I think that they illustrate the ways in which the healthcare system is failing folks. So one of the things that I'll talk about a bit throughout this podcast more in depth is that my best friend almost died in late 2015 after her physician didn't listen or take action on her physical complaints while she was pregnant. It was incredibly complex. And there's so much to explain with that, which I can't here, but um, it left her disabled and her disability later resulted in a lot of care related discrimination, including an assault from a care provider. And I know that also this time of year is very hard for for her because on New Year's Eve, she went into a coma and was given a 50% chance of survival and she lived. I actually consulted with her a lot before recording this. And I was like, what am I missing? Is there anything that I'm missing from some of the notes that I was taking beforehand? I also have another friend of the family who died after being ignored by physicians for an entire year because of her mental health diagnosis. And by the time they found the cancer, she only lived for a couple more weeks. I highly suspect that her being a wheelchair user, Asian, and having mental illness contributed to the bias against her. And we know that her mental illness was like her providers knowing about her mental illness diagnosis was a direct result of why they ignored her complaints and believed that it was just her mental illness causing a lot of her physical complaints. I actually still have the last book that she was reading and it's unfinished. And honestly, I don't know what to what to do with it. Uh, But I just keep it. And when I have the hard days at work where I just want to scream because the system is so screwed up, I remember her and I remember my friends that are still with me. And I remember all the other injustices that I've seen among my clients that I can't speak to here. But I keep working.
because everybody deserved better than what they got. So that's what informs my perspective. Wow, that's a lot. And thank you for sharing all that. Yes, and we love intersectional feminism, and we love and appreciate your stories and your willingness to be vulnerable and share all this with us. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no value that can be placed on that. So thank you for recording today, and and we're excited, quote-unquote, excited maybe is not the best word. We're looking forward (laughs) and ready to hear your stories, and we hope our listeners are too. So like we said, today we're going to talk about providing sexual and reproductive health care for folks with disabilities. So let's jump right in. Historically speaking, there has been a dark history between people with disabilities and birth control slash sterilization. Can you talk to our listeners briefly about some of this history? So there is a long history of eugenics in the United States and forced sterilization. But there are some. Okay, so some of the most notable cases involve the Supreme Court case Buck versus Bell from uh, 1927. So in Buck versus Bell, they affirmed that states have the right to sterilize prisoners. And the reasons that the judges cited had to do more with their eugenics perspective than with the rights of the individuals that were sterilized against their will. So this still happens. There are recent cases of this still happening in the U.S. where people have been sterilized. I know that one of them was at an ICE detention facility very recently. So they of course, like uh, they're targeting prisoners, but a lot of those prisoners are also mentally ill individuals or people who have other disabilities as well. And so like, I also think about how there was an Indiana eugenics law in 1907. Indiana became one of the first of more than 30 states to enact a compulsory sterilization law, allowing the state to prevent uh, procreation of confirmed criminals, quote, idiots, imbeciles, rapists. And uh, by 1940, there were more than 18,000 mentally ill people that were surgically sterilized. So in the United States, there have been tens of thousands of people who have been sterilized uh, without their consent. And there are still cases that are going through and There are some states I've heard of that are talking about reparations for those individuals. I know that California was one of them. So even there's like a more contemporary case that I could talk about and bring up. So y'all are familiar with Britney Spears, I'm sure. She is one example of how we still coerce people into birth control methods that they don't want. Britney Spears was placed under a conservatorship. She was one of the richest pop stars that we know of in the U.S., And she had an IUD put in and she was not allowed to have it removed because of her conservatorship. She had said that she wanted to have more children, but because of her conservatorship, she was not allowed to have it removed. And she testified to that in court. She's recently gotten out of her conservatorship. But I think what happened to Britney Spears points out if that's happening to the richest, the people who are assumed to have the most power, Imagine what's happening to the most marginalized, because it is a lot more extensive than what we've seen here in just this case. Not to say that that's not incredibly screwed up what happened to her. There's not really a most screwed up or a least screwed up. There's just screwed up when it comes to this issue. And also, too, like I I thought about this a lot with uh, with birth control and sterilization. There's also other ways in which the sexual health 
of people with disabilities is has been up for debate or has been violated. So in 2019 in Iowa, there was a case where uh, regarding the Glenwood Resource Center, which was an institution for disabled people. And they conducted sexual arousal studies on people with disabilities and spent state dollars acquiring the materials for this. They are under federal investigation right now. But I think some of the, the things that I've talked about here point to we are particularly prone to abuse because we lack power. So we know that, you know, abuse is about power and control. And I think I probably talked about this a little bit in my last podcast, but abuse is about power and control. And it starts out with the biased attitudes that we have about people. So, you know, disabled people don't deserve bodily autonomy. They don't, they can't take care of themselves. They, we should pity them. And then it starts graduating up into that systemic discrimination. So like what we've talked about here, what we talked about that happened to Britney Spears that happened in the Supreme Court case, Buck versus Bell. And then it goes up to that forced sterilization. And that is a form of violence against people with disabilities. So you kind of moved into the present with talking about that issue that's going on in the home for people in Iowa, and also Britney Spears. But can you talk in more detail about the current state of sexual and reproductive health care for folks with disabilities, from your perspective? It's mixed. Some people have absolutely amazing providers that have done a lot to challenge their ableism. Most of the people that I know who are accessing health care would probably characterize it as not great. I would characterize it as not great. I think the biases become even more ingrained in med school. So in society, we have this general ableism that is taught to people from the time that they are young. But I think that that ableism becomes a lot more ingrained in med school, because if you look at what the medical model of disability is, it seeks to cure and eradicate disability rather than accept body diversity. And of course, like you know, I think about my own disability, I absolutely needed my spine surgery to spare some of my nerve function. But the entire time that I was accessing healthcare, people still talked down to me and treated me like a child, because I was disabled. And so that like, and I, I see that dynamic of my own personal experience replicated in those of my clients, I see it replicated in the lives of my friends, as well. And I also think about med school as a concept, it's not particularly easy for people with disabilities to access med school, especially if they have a chronic pain related illness. So like they have these marathon days where they'll go for 12 hours or more, you have to have so much physical stamina to be able to be in med school, or even, you know, in nursing school, I think about folks I know who've gotten serious injuries from being at their jobs in uh, hospitals. And it's not accessible for people with chronic illness or physical disabilities to be doing these types of jobs. So when nobody else in your field has the disabilities that you are as a practitioner treating, there is a bias that happens because of the way that the system's structured. So like everybody has this idea that, well, it, I see this with the with the med school instructors. They'll say, I was taught this way. And so I'm going to teach people this way and continue to enforce this system in which our students are tired, completely worn out, 
not able to keep up with their coursework as easily. And so they keep that cycle going in the med school. And that's, I think, part of what it like. It's one of many vehicles that facilitates that ableism in the medical field. Yeah, I thank you for mentioning that, because I think we talked about this before. But now I'm totally blanking on her name, Nicole Loretta. Loretta Ross. Who founded um, the Reproductive Justice Movement, made a comment in a conference that Nicole and I went to about how medicine or med schools cannot teach patient-centered or human-person-centered care because they themselves do not treat their their students as humans. And I think that that really goes into that same thing. And, you know, it's only for this certain type of person who can go into this type of training. And then it leads to everybody else getting, you know, subpar care or not being treated as a human and, and that violence that you, you speak about. Yeah. And also, I think that you put that a lot more eloquently than I put that it is about the dehumanization of the professionals in the field. Like y'all have the highest rates of suicide by profession for a reason. Maybe we should do something about that. I think it's worth doing something about that, especially considering like in Iowa, we have a huge shortage of people that can provide OB-GYN care. So maybe we should make this field a bit more hospitable to learn. And then we would see better results regarding the humanization of patients and colleagues. Yeah. And I think what you said was right on a lot of the time. I I mean, we even hear that, I think, Nicole, like from faculty, like I had to study or perform or do X, Y, Z. You can, too. And that's not really like just because you had to do that doesn't mean that it was right or good. And you're also like, and did you turn out okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's not working. You may have turned out, but was it really okay? Yeah. Right. It's not working. So thank you for that. So, Storm, what are some other problematic ways or problematic things that clinicians say or do when providing care for folks with disabilities? All right. So, this is going to be lengthy. Buckle up, kids, because I've got a lot to say. So one of the things that I see a lot as an advocate is they'll look at family, friends, and also me in the role of an advocate, and other advocates have confirmed that they experience this too, and they talk over the patient with a disability as if they're not even in the room. They make decisions like they will believe that I can make medical decisions for someone simply because that person has a medical advocate. And I look at them like, no, don't don't be like that. Don't assume that I can make decisions for them. Talk to the patient because they are the person that you are providing care to. I think assumptions are pretty rampant based on disability. So a lot of the time I see in regards to reproductive health, they'll assume that you're celibate if you're disabled. They assume that you don't want kids or that it's inherently dangerous for you to become pregnant, even if they don't have much evidence behind their reasoning or they think that you don't deserve the right to parent. And also, 
uh, regardless of if you have an intellectual disability or not, they assume that you have one if you have a mobility aid a lot of the time. So I see them get down on people's level when they're in a wheelchair and start talking in the same voice that you would use to talk to your dog or your baby. And then they will, so they assume that you have this intellectual disability simply because you are in a wheelchair or using crutches and they start talking down to you. And so they, they assume that you, you can't possibly understand the things that are being said to you. And that's incredibly annoying to a lot of folks, myself included. And it's also really degrading. They also assume that you're not the expert on your own body or experience a lot. And so like, I want to bring in my friend's story. She said she gave me explicit permission and asked actually (laughs) that I talk about this and use this as an example. So um, my friend that almost died when uh, she gave birth to her child and had a lot of complex medical issues, she had to go back for uh, care uh, with a gastroenterologist And they were going to do a procedure on her. And she had said, this specific anesthetic does not work on me. They discovered that it didn't work on her when she was in rehab. And uh, they found out that she would stay awake and completely cognizant when they used this anesthetic on her. And she remembered absolutely every last part of any painful procedure. So it was in her medical notes to not use this anesthetic on her. The gastroenterologist in question said that he believed it had been long enough since they used it on her that it would probably work. And he wanted to use it anyway. And he was going to. And then she stayed awake through the entire procedure and she remembers the incision. She remembers the pain. And I think the worst part was that she tried to alert them that she was still awake and cognizant. She started banging her head, her hands on the table and trying to talk with the the tubes in her mouth. And the nurse instead told her to be quiet and hold still. And she developed PTSD from that and filed some complaints with that specific hospital. And of course, that guy still works there. He still instructs students. There's nothing bad that will ever happen to him after that incident or any of the nurses that participated in that. What happened to her was an assault. And what happened to her is also a very good example of what happens when you don't listen to someone about their own body. People are the experts on their own body. I assure you, if you are a doctor that is being boarded onto their you know, care team, You need to talk to them and you need to listen to them and you need to get consent and not just push forward when someone says things like this anesthetic doesn't work for me. Even like regarding the physical space, this is another thing I want to bring up. I always see them tell the patient to stick their wheelchair, which is the most expensive um, and necessary extension of their body and independence. And they want them to stick it out in the hall just outside the exam door because they refuse to move the cheap waiting room chair to make room for that person. And it makes people really uncomfortable to the point that a lot of the people I serve stopped bringing their wheelchairs to appointments and will just use the hospital wheelchair because what they're essentially doing is asking someone to put their life out in the hallway. Like, would you ask someone to leave their purse and credit card unattended in the hallway? No. Okay, then why would you ask them to leave their wheelchair in the hallway for anyone else to move around, touch, 
or maybe you know a nurse walks by and is like oh this is out in the hallway let's let's go move this to a different location and also it's i think it's especially relevant because multiple people have had their wheelchairs destroyed by flight attendants who didn't know how to properly move store take care of the equipment and so of course it's a serious concern for people who have wheelchairs because they don't want just anyone touching and moving the wheelchairs because they are specially customized. They cost tens of thousands of dollars in some cases. And without it, they don't have the ability to transport themselves and move about the world freely. Um, You also don't just get to grab someone's wheelchair and start pushing them wherever you want them to go. Like I see this a lot with the clinicians when I'm medically advocating for somebody, they'll pick up the chair and start moving the person. They don't get consent before they start pushing. So they just put them wherever they want them to go. And I think like, okay, let's say you were looking at someone who didn't need a wheelchair. You wouldn't just physically pick up that person, throw them over your shoulder and say, okay, we're going to the exam room now. No, you need to get consent before you move a person and you wouldn't try that with a person who doesn't have a wheelchair. I've also seen a lot of clinicians assume that machines can act as an interpreter. Um, especially, this is especially relevant with the deaf and ASL interpretation. So these machines are really not sufficient. They do this for all kinds of interpretation services, including people whose first language is not English. So you type into this machine and it does the translation for you, but it creates barriers and sometimes those translations are not entirely accurate. You have the money if you are a part of a large institution, especially I'm thinking about the hospitals in my local town. You can hire an interpreter and you're also mandated under federal law to provide those interpretation services to folks. Um, also, if you, you need to understand that you have to prep in advance for your disabled patient rather than showing up and just scrambling at the last minute to make accommodations for them. Sometimes those accommodations are not easy to get at the last minute, like an interpreter, or perhaps you need to make sure that the doorways are clear because your clinic is not formatted in a way that a person can easily access it if they have a mobility aid, or also maybe talking to the person in advance before any sort of appointment. Like I think about folks who have some pretty severe claustrophobia that I've worked with and they needed to get an MRI. I've had an MRI. I'm not a fan of how tiny that tube is, but I understand why it's formatted in that way. But if you don't talk to the patient beforehand, then they won't be able to do things like get the accommodation of getting a sedative medication to be able to go through that MRI without freaking out. So you need those medications in those circumstances. And that's just one example of why you can't scramble at the last minute. Um, they also assume that our existence is inherently miserable and needs to be cured rather than accommodated. So I know that a lot of autistic activists talk about how applied behavioral analysis therapy, ABA therapy, was blatantly abusive to them as children because it functions as conversion therapy and teaches them assimil assimilation and to silence their own needs. And it teaches them that there is something inherently wrong with them. And I don't think that parents sign their kids up for this therapy, wanting the worst for their kids. They are told that it is absolutely crucial that their child go through this therapy. But what we're talking about is the impact of what that therapy has done to so many autistic adults who are now speaking out about it, not the intent behind it. So impact matters more than intent. 
Some versions of this therapy have been physically abusive, including sticking children's hands into textures that overstimulate them until they cry. And it's because they perceive these textures as painful because they perceive the world differently than neurotypical individuals. There were also like super early versions of this therapy that involved electric shock as punishment in some versions of it, or kids would get punished for things that don't really hurt anyone, like their vocal outbursts or just flapping their hands. This is referred to as stimming because they're autistic traits and that's what the therapy claims to eliminate. And like on a similar note, there's also a lot of quality of life assumptions about our lives. So they assume that because we are disabled, that our life is not good and also that we don't deserve life-saving care in some circumstances. So um, there was actually a 2008 survey of organ transplant centers And in that survey, 44% of the respondents said they would not provide an organ transplant to a child or person rather with Down syndrome or a person with autism. And 85% of them said that they would consider those disabilities in the decision as to whether or not they should even be listed on the organ transplant list. So people are getting denied organ transplants on the basis that they are disabled. And that is not okay. And we saw a lot of those um, ableist attitudes start to come out during the COVID-19 pandemic when hospitals were particularly overwhelmed and had to prioritize individuals during triage and people with disabilities were deprioritized and left to die. People died because of ableism in the healthcare setting. There are so many examples that I could list here about the problematic things that clinicians say or do when caring for folks with disabilities. Yeah, but this is what I've got so far. Clearly what you're saying is there's an issue. Indeed. There is a lot of room for improvement. So I am, again, happy that we're talking to you about this. So then let's talk about, like, the consequences then down the road. So, you know, there's all these issues in care. So what are some of the consequences that you've seen in your work if a person has a bad interaction with a clinician or, you know, probably likely has several bad interactions with clinicians? In the worst cases, death. Some people, you know, I've, I've noticed this a lot. Um, I, I think about the friend of the family's story when I think about this question. So the thing is that when she started experiencing her physical complaints, which were pretty severe, she went to the ER over and over and over again and tried to keep seeking care and get someone to perform a medical test and figure out what was going on. But they kept telling her that they were pretty sure the vomiting was because of her mental illness. So that was part of what led her down the path to dying later on, or at least not, not having too much of a warning that she was dying. Because it was basically like she found out that she had cancer. And then two weeks later, after that, she died, they estimated two months, but she died two weeks later. So yeah, in the worst cases, death in some of the cases that don't involve death, people will avoid healthcare providers. There's uh, a lot of folks who will wait until it's absolutely necessary because they know that that interaction 
isn't going to go well, and then it may result in some pretty serious physical consequences for that person because they waited so long for care. And I also know that a lot of people have safety plans when accessing healthcare. I actually have a safety plan when accessing healthcare because of discrimination that I've faced over time. But I've seen people's safety plans involve, you know, talking about their child nonstop to see if they could get the clinician to humanize them and maybe not kill them. This is actually one of my friend's plans if she were to get COVID would be to talk about her child nonstop and hope that they see that she's a mother and that someone is dependent on her and that they should save her life, even though what they see is a person with a disability and they see her through the lens of ableism. I, I think too, like a lot of the stuff that I talked about in my medical violence podcast, it applies here. So people, you know, they're not just avoiding healthcare. And sometimes they will seek healthcare over and over again and be labeled as a frequent flyer, which I absolutely detest that terminology, but they'll be labeled as a frequent flyer by their local ER because no one is listening to them. And so then because clinicians aren't listening to them in the general practice setting, their health and their health needs are starting to burden the ER system. And everybody talks about how you need to stay away from the ER if you, you know, don't have a certain set of symptoms or if it's not a true emergency. But for a lot of folks, this is the only option that they have left to get their physical needs assessed and treated. And it's not fair. I really appreciate you saying that because I have seen that more, I mean, being in healthcare where you'll have patients who frequently call and want to talk a long time. And I mean, obviously, that is difficult, you know, because we have limited time. But those patients do get labeled as, oh, her again, or, or, oh, like she calls every day, or I don't have time for her. And what I have noticed is most often they just want to be heard and listened to and explain like we don't know what's causing this you you know it's fine to say you don't know but we'll you know help you through it and honestly like when you really have these conversations and listen and have an open mind it it really helps and they don't call as much or they don't need to go to the ER as much it's like you said, they they are seeking something and they're not getting it. And so they're going to either stop seeking it or they're going to avoid seeking health care or they're going to seek it more and more and more until they get something. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I think the other thing I really want to highlight for listeners is I certainly have never heard of this is when you talked about a safety plan. I've never heard safety plan be used in this way that their safety plan is to talk about their kids as a mean to humanize them. That's 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 a thing there that I think we kind of need to recognize as clinicians that people have this and and the purpose of that. So I don't know if you Storm if you have anything else you want to add to the safety plan discussion. It's rough. Safety plans. First off, a patient should never have to have a safety plan to come see you. And they became necessary because of the rampant medical violence that happens against us. Like I think about my own safety plan is I have to take an advocate with me to 
any healthcare appointment because of medical violence that I've faced. And I've noticed that having that extra set of eyes makes the person feel like they're more accountable to treat me well. I've also got like plans around, well, what if I, I need to get a vaccination? Like, how am I going to mitigate that with some of the things that I've experienced? Like, what, what do I do if the person starts belittling me in the room? How am I going to confront those conversations? So there's like, there's a lot of techniques that you have to learn to survive to get your needs met. I've also seen so doctors hate it when we do this, but sometimes we stockpile our prescribed medications. And we do that because they suck at re-prescribing our medicines or we're terrified that we're not going to get that prescribed to us again because they can just take that away from us at the drop of a hat. Like I think about how like I've got a lot of people in my life who have ADHD and they're on um, medication for that, but the medication is considered a controlled substance. So they have to call the hospital um, every time that they want their prescription refilled. But if you have ADHD you don't remember to call the hospital. <laughs> so then you end up going without your medication. And if you have to go to work, then that's going to be even more difficult. So then people start stockpiling that medication. Or I see like a lot of trans people will stockpile their hormone medicine just in case they can't get a hold of that prescription or there's some sort of supply chain issue or the doctor is saying, well, you need to come in for another appointment before we will prescribe this to you which is terrifying because for a lot of folks, especially if they've had surgeries to remove their gonads, they are dependent on that hormone for hormonal regulation. So yeah, the, the safety plans are born from violence and they are not. And I think too, like when providers see you enacting a lot of these techniques, they think that you're being manipulative or that you're abusing the system. It's not being manipulative. It is a response to trauma, and it is a technique that we use to survive. Just to get on my soapbox here, but all of this is really getting at trust. And a lot of our patients, whether they're people of color, people with disabilities, queer people, women, a lot of things, poverty, I mean, at some point, it gets to be most of the population and becoming not trusting of healthcare. And I think, you know, we're really shocked to see all these people who won't get vaccinated. But I think this is inevitable um, because of the way we've treated, we as in the healthcare community have treated people and why it's so important to, to grow and learn from this. For the future. Oh, yeah. And even like thinking about vaccine hesitancy, the thing and I, I've served vaccine hesitant individuals, the folks that are vaccine hesitant are often people who have been pretty badly hurt by the healthcare establishment. So they no longer are able to form a trusting relationship with their provider. So that provider relaying that knowledge to them doesn't do any good because they don't trust you and they've been hurt too bad by the system in the past. If we want to solve the issue of vaccine hesitancy, I think we may need it to come from our peers because it is about social pressures. And it's also 
uh, you know, we have to combat misinformation too. And we also have to address the concerns that people have about vaccines as well. Like a lot of my disabled friends were like, can I have the vaccine? I'm immunocompromised. I had, you know, another friend who had to go off of her medications that are used for her chronic pain for basically a month, I think, because those medications were immunosuppressants. And that takes a toll and there's extra time off that has to happen. That's a part of it. So we have to have our questions answered and we can't just try to silence any opposition to it. We need honest answers to those questions. Yeah, and I I think that's definitely an important discussion and one that we could probably have an entire podcast on as well. So then speaking of safety plans, I kind of have a feeling that maybe this is related to that. But during a phone conversation, we had a discussion about how some unmarried folks are wearing wedding rings to clinic appointments. Can you talk to us and our listeners about why this is happening? You know, it doesn't even happen with just clinic appointments. It also happens for things like job interviews and any time that you have to interact with the system. But the reason behind it is you're trying to create a perception of yourself. It is a part of safety planning. I have done this, too. I actually I wore a wedding ring to my interview with RVAP. They'll probably laugh if they hear this later because I don't think that any of them noticed. It was my grandma's wedding ring. But the reason that you wear a wedding ring is because you want to control their perception of you. So you want to be perceived as someone who is an adult, someone who can make decisions and consent to marriage, someone who is valued and has a family. And of course, like you are valued regardless, but sometimes wearing this wedding ring creates that perception in a way that you can't easily achieve otherwise. And sometimes I see clinicians will notice the fine details like that on people. So they might start asking you about that marriage or asking you about your family when they see that. And that wedding ring is a way of humanizing yourself in the, the face of ableism, which seeks to dehumanize disabled people. So I've done it. I, I wore a wedding ring to RVAP's interview because I wanted to be perceived as a stable individual that you should definitely employ. Look at me. I'm ready to settle down, be here for a long time. I have a family. They don't. And I think they probably knew me at least a little bit and knew that I wasn't married (laughs) at the time, but I didn't realize I was going to encounter people that I knew (laughs) or knew about me at that interview. Well, and I remember in that conversation and you had kind of touched on this just now, is when you had said that having a wedding ring means you've consented to marriage, so you can probably consent and make decisions about your health care. And to me, like, that that just really struck me that that is a symbol of your ability to participate in your own health care. Yeah, yeah, that is... That is another one of the chief reasons. Like you want them to understand that you can consent to healthcare and that you are capable of making your own decisions. So let's flip the script a little bit and talk about good things that you have seen, hopefully, or, you know, just good things that you wish would happen. So could you describe like what a quote unquote good or positive interaction or communication between a clinician and a patient who has a disability? So 
I would say we start with the principles of consent and humanization. So all clinicians need to ask patients about their access needs, listen, and confront their own biases before making it to the exam room. And the thing about the patient-centered care and these good interactions is they're not actually that difficult to achieve. You just have to have willing participants in that. What I will say is, you know, we, we have a teaching hospital in our town. The residents and medical students at that institution have their values in the right place the majority of the time, from what I've observed. They sit down, they talk to patients, they listen, they answer questions, they keep a friendly demeanor, they try to make your experience easier, they value consent. They are young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed at the beginning of their careers before anyone has spoiled them um, and turned them into people that don't value those things, as we know that that's part of how medical education functions. But a lot of the time, I, I see these folks interacting with people who are disabled in a much more positive way. Most of the time when I see clients, friends, and myself having a good interaction with a provider, it's with a resident or it's with a medical student because they're willing to take the time and they're willing to listen to somebody and ask first. I also want to just highlight something you said too. And I think Stephanie, this is really a theme that we've probably seen in most of our podcasts is that really when it comes to communication, so much of the work is actually not during the actual interaction. So much of what makes our communication better is this personal work and things we do before even going into the room with the patient. Like it's a lot of heart work, self work, bias confronting, getting uncomfortable with ourselves. So I appreciate Storm too that you've really made that clear as well that again, so much of what makes a quote unquote good interaction is really putting in the work in ourselves. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like if you're not if you're not confronting your own biases the way that you've been taught, raised, um, things that you've believed your entire life, and if you're not willing to have difficult conversations with folks and receive critical feedback, you can't offer the best care. You have to be able to receive that feedback and say, okay, I'm going to change and I'm going to do things better next time, which it also, it, it's particularly difficult, I think, for folks in the medical profession because so much of their profession is built on perfectionism. And a lot of it centers on the rules of engagement for white supremacy, which I don't really have time to get into here. But if somebody wants to list that as uh, a resource for reading on their own after the podcast, absolutely, I can get somebody that article. But so because it centers so much on perfectionism, and sometimes within your job, if you make a mistake, somebody dies, people have a hard time confronting when they do make mistakes, which is inevitable because so much of the rule of medicine has been you can't make mistakes. And you you have to understand people are going to make mistakes. You just have to have a plan for accountability afterwards of what you're going to do when that happens. Okay, so this next question is kind of a big one. It's a two-part question, so bear with us. But as we have previously discussed in episode 38, which we talked about medical violence, uh, consent and relatedly maintaining bodily autonomy is critical during all healthcare encounters. So one, how can clinicians ask in a patient-centered way 
like how to appropriately assess a patient's accessibility and comfort with exams, and two, how can clinicians ensure they have consent from all patients like nonverbal folks? So for the first portion of this question, I would say you have to ask and you have to communicate directly and you have to do that for every patient, regardless of if you know if they have a disability or not. I advise using language that the patient understands, but don't automatically start oversimplifying things just because the person is disabled. Because again, like what I talked about with if you're using a mobility aid, people talk down to you a lot. So you have to spend some time getting to know your patients. And I also want to note too that there are folks who are nonverbal, as we've talked about, um, but they also communicate in different ways. So people assume that just because somebody is nonverbal that they don't have a method of communication, that they can't consent to something. And that's just not true for a lot of individuals. You have to learn their way of communication. And sometimes that means reading body language much more intensely than you would normally. Sometimes it means talking to their support person and trying to figure out what their communication style is. It also means spending some time with that patient. And it means getting creative. The hard thing about consent in the medical space is that there's not a simple solution for everything. It's complex. People communicate in complex ways, and there's not a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to people with disabilities. But you have to be willing to accept no for an answer, and you need to present options and make it a collaborative conversation instead of making decisions about how that interaction needs to go, which means thinking outside the box. So times where I've worked with people who have PTSD and they're afraid of maybe getting a pap smear or getting another type of pelvic exam, they may have some pretty serious concerns about how that exam is going to go down. I see clinicians usually jump to anesthetize that person and just do the exam that way. And so that's the option that they present. But I also see a lot of individuals would like to receive instructions on how to do it on their own or how to collect the sample that way or want uh, more information on can I change positions? Like what does my level of control look like in that setting? So we can't just jump to this is the option that I think is going to work best for you. You have to present all of the options and may let that person make a choice based on what you have presented. And some of the options, you may look at them and think, I don't think this is the best one. But we also hold that the person is the expert on their body and experience. And they will ultimately, at the end of the day, know what's best for them. And they need to be able to make that decision because they're the one that has to live with it happening. And I think that when I talk about how you have to be willing to accept no for an answer. So like, a lot of the time when I see disabled people accessing healthcare, especially if they have an intellectual disability, they'll there'll be a conversation around how well, this is what's good for the person, this person needs this health care, and they won't accept no from that patient. And it's incredibly traumatic for them. And sure, it may be necessary health care, for that person, but they also didn't consent to it. And that's a form of assault. And you got to sit with that. If you've ended up doing that at some point in your career, 
but people talk about how like there are these individuals who can't make decisions for themselves and that their guardians need to make decisions for them. And I also think that when we talk about this debate, I've rarely, if ever, seen somebody ask disabled people for their input on that debate. And I see that their voices are not centered in that debate. It's always the guardian's voices, the parents' voices, the doctor's voices who get centered in those debates, never the actual person that's affected by it. They're assumed as being incompetent and unable to make that decision for themselves. And so I know it's a radical approach, but I choose to center the person with the disability in this. And if the person is not consenting, even if it is necessary health care, I think it's best to back off. So just to try and give our listeners some concrete examples, but say your patient is in a wheelchair. In your interactions, how would a clinician ask? Like, is there, I'm assuming there are better ways to ask, like, well, one, asking in general sounds like it's a great place to start. But in in this situation, how do you ask? What's the best patient-centered way to ask ability or preference in the type of care they would receive? I leave it open, actually. I, I leave the question more open and more abstract rather than asking specifics such as, can you get on the table by yourself? Instead, I say, ask questions like, what will make this easier for you? What will make this more comfortable for you? Is there any assistance that you need that I can provide? Those questions are open and they also don't make the assumption that their needs are just going to center on their physical ability to access that exam. It also centers comfort in it too. So just because they can get up onto the exam table doesn't mean that they're comfortable on the exam table in the lithotomy position. They might be comfortable, more comfortable in another position or it um, leaves it more open for creativity. So maybe that person has a better way of maneuvering themselves if they stay in their wheelchair for that exam, depending on the type of wheelchair. What, what could that look like? I love that question. I think everyone should get that question. Like you said, we shouldn't assume that people have or don't have a disability. Yes, thank you for those examples. I think sometimes for myself too and our listeners, having those concrete ways that they can reframe a question that they already ask or maybe aren't asking is a really good quick tool for them. So could you tell our listeners in what way you would like to see the medical system change to better serve folks with disabilities? I think it has to start with humanization. And I think that we have to build humanization into the field if we ever want to see any change. Because like, I think people will center on these tangible things more than they will center on the cultural change. So they'll say, we need an, a disability accessible exam table. We need wider doorways. We need ASL interpreters. But they won't look inward and they won't think I should assess my own biases because the problem as to how things got this way in the first place is it's cultural. There's not really a quick fix or a box that anybody can check off. It is a culture change that needs to happen in the field of medicine. And that culture change needs to center consent and bodily autonomy and humanity and see people as people and see them as equal to you. We have to find a way 
to equalize the relationship between providers and their patients because the care will get better once we do that. I want to just put this out there on, again, my soapbox because this power differential. I see a lot of arguing uh, amongst, let's say, nurse practitioners and physicians about this use of the term doctor and whether they have the right to call themselves Dr. Edmonds or Dr. Lowe if they're not a medical doctor. And I just want to say that that term doctor so-and-so is a power thing. And let's just all treat each other as humans and use the name like our first name, because we're not calling our pa- no, I've never had a doctor call me a doctor. And but they you know, like we're always, you know, saying, well, you earned your degree. So that I guess gives you a higher status than your patients. So that's something I would like to challenge our listeners and to stop using that terminology around your patients. You can use it for a wedding invitation if you like. Yeah. And relatedly, One night when I couldn't sleep, for some reason, I started thinking about power, concepts of power and accountability and uh, advocacy. I don't know how I got there in the middle of the night, but I did. And one of the things I was thinking of was like, you know, when you have these spaces of power, you or especially in power dynamics, you take away accountability and you take away someone's ability to be an advocate. And so when we have a medical system or you think of and I think when I was thinking of this at night I was specifically thinking about generational differences in how doctors are portrayed older generations the doctor had all the power right like whatever the doctor said is what flew you did not question it because the doctor knew like they have all the power and now I think we are trying to get to that space storm like you said where it's humane and we're on the same level like there's not this huge power differential and because when you think of these power spaces on what level then say you believe the doctor has all the power do you then feel empowered to advocate for yourself you you don't because why would you right you're you give the doctor all the power and so if we want patients to advocate if we want to come from this space of like advocacy and justice and then really power needs to be confronted and i think a lot of what you've talked about today is powerlessness you know we view folks with disabilities as being powerless or having less power in general and then also talking about how the medical system has so much power and really challenging that so I think I kind of got off on a really big tangent there Um, it was a tangent that needed to happen though (laughs) thank you for bringing me back but yeah I think it's it's important to talk about and it's important for us as clinicians to challenge our own conceptions of power, how we are unaware or aware of our privilege and our power in the system, and who are we giving power to or not. And again, that's that personal work that we all need to do. Yeah. All right. So could you tell our listeners what resources you would recommend for clinicians who are wanting to learn more about improving the care they provide to people with disabilities? And if you could also throw in the title of that article that you mentioned about white supremacy in medicine. So 
if you're wanting to learn more about the rules of engagement for white supremacy and how they are impacting just about every last aspect of the medical field, Robin DeAngelo has a book about it, but there's also a Googleable article that's a lot more accessible called White Fragility and the Rules of Engagement that I would reference uh, looking at. So it, it talks about everything from like tone feedback, like, uh, you know, you have to give feedback privately, um, you have to be as indirect as possible, you have to focus on somebody's intentions rather than on their impact. So there's at least 11 rules that she talks about in the rules of engagement for white supremacy. And I think that that's definitely worth a listen. One of my favorite organizations that focuses on disability justice specifically is Project Let's. It's a great resource for anyone who is looking to learn more and become involved and challenge their ableism. Project Let's is um, spelled L-E-T-S. And then they taught a course through birthing advocacy doula trainings on birth and disability. It's a four-week course. I took it last year in the spring And it's an absolutely amazing course for anybody that's looking to challenge ableism, especially if they are in the business of reproductive health care and providing birth-related care and services to pregnant people. Any time that somebody wants to learn more about disability, I would advise them to look for organizations that are led by people with disabilities, not led for people with disabilities, because we've got this saying um, in the disability rights movement community, nothing about us without us. And so you should always be involving us in your activist efforts rather than trusting people who are speaking on our behalf. So, you know, I think, you know, Autism Speaks is probably not a good resource for that reason. Instead, I refer people more to the Autism Self-Advocacy Network, which is run by people who are autistic. I I definitely, these are some of the three organizations that I recommend the most, Um, but anything that's led by us would be the best resource. Awesome. All right. So Storm, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health care through communication. Thank you so much for joining us again with an awesome episode. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? I would say if people are interested in this topic and interested in challenging ableism and want to chat, go ahead and hit me up. You have my professional um, work email that I think you probably include as a part of the show notes. I work for RVAP. So if you want to call RVAP and leave a message and give me a call, I am open for a chat and I'm open to provide services to anyone who needs them. And we also usually tell people if you want to email us at WCH at womencenteredhealth.com, we can also get you in touch with Storm. And by women, we mean woman with an A. W-O-M-A-N. How you said that might have, Thank sa- you. <laughs> might have sounded like with I the know, E. I never know. Woman. <laughs> woman. <laughs> centered health. There we go. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Storm. As always, we just so appreciate your perspective, and I'm sure we will have more episodes with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I look forward to coming back next time.
And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Oh.